Welcome to the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Davidson, and in this podcast, we'll explore the art and science of negotiation in real world situations. Whether you're negotiating a business deal, asking for a raise, or trying to resolve a conflict with a colleague or loved one, negotiation is an essential skill that can help you achieve your goals and build better relationships. Through interviews with experts, real life stories, and practical tips and techniques, we'll deep dive into the strategies and tactics that can make you a better negotiator. From understanding your own negotiation style, to reading body language, handling difficult conversations, and overcoming common challenges, this podcast will give you the tools you need to negotiate with confidence and achieve your objectives. So whether you're a seasoned negotiator looking to refine your skills, or someone who's new to the game, join us as we explore the world of negotiation in real life. In this episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Radhika Kanhai, a partner at Cornwall's Law Plus More. Radhika has over 20 years experience in complex court litigation and dispute resolution. Her specific areas of expertise include corporate reconstruction and insolvency, personal insolvency, estate litigation, leasing disputes, contractual breaches, franchising and Corporations Act matters. Radhika has also undertaken extensive accredited mediation training, resulting in particular expertise in the area of alternative dispute resolution through negotiation, mediation and conciliation processes. This enables her to achieve the best practical and achievable outcomes for her clients. In addition, Radhika is privileged to have been recognised as a recommended lawyer in Doyle's Leading Insolvency and Restructuring Lawyers Guide, and she is also a Lexology Client Choice recipient and was awarded the Outstanding Female Award 2018 by Women in Insolvency and Restructuring Victoria. In our discussion today, we speak about the difference between a rights-based and interest-based approach to disputes, the impact of choosing the wrong mediator, the value of pre-mediation preparation with the mediator, being open to a proper mediation process as being in the best interests of the client, the damage that can be caused by miscommunication, the unintended signals that can be given in a negotiation, negotiation in writing compared with face-to-face negotiation, the benefits of mediation before litigation, and much, much more. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So Radhika, welcome to Negotiation in Real Life. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Now, we have known each other for quite some time since the days when I was an insolvency practitioner. And you've obviously stayed in the insolvency field for a long time. And I know there's heaps of different negotiations that go on in that capacity. So I think we're going to have lots to talk about. Um, But before we get into your negotiation experience, perhaps you can give people an overview, a little bit about your background and and what you do. So I've been a commercial litigation lawyer and insolvency lawyer for close to, well, over 20 years now, actually. I've been as you say, working in the industry for a long time. I have a practice, though, that combines both insolvency work as well as commercial litigation work. 
Um, so in that role, I've acted for a vast array of people, um, corporates, you know, sophisticated litigants in your uh, liquidators, receivers, administrators, um, bankrupts, trustees of um, bankrupts. Uh, so covers covers a whole range of areas. I practice in. Um, you know, corporations law, uh, franchising disputes, retail leasing disputes, contractual disputes. Um, so varied, um, but very interesting practice. Yeah, quite varied by the sounds of it too, which I think is always good for keeping it interesting. So great. And I'm sure we'll get some examples as we go through. I might go back all the way to the beginning though. Obviously, negotiation is a really important skill for all lawyers, um, whether they're disputes lawyers or not. What sort of formal education did you get around negotiation before you started? I must say nothing at all really when I was studying law and it was really um, when I started doing litigation. I did start in a government practice and did articles way back then um yeah. and you know litigation was my first rotation and I sort of was sort of you know put into it and it was a bit of a, a, a sink or swim scenario but I really liked the litigation um atmosphere you know dealing with different stakeholders um you know seeing great representation in court um, and then I continued um when I moved into a commercial litigation role started doing a bit of insolvency and then got some postgraduate qualifications in insolvency, but also um, was really interested in the negotiation and dispute, alternative dispute resolution side of things. Um, you know, it was really gaining a lot of momentum, even though it started, ADR started in Sydney, in Melbourne. Back then it was getting a lot of momentum Um uh, and, you know, over time we've seen courts really by default order mediation um, these days. Um, and back then, you know, did a few mediation courses. Um, accreditation was coming into um, the industry, so decided to do an accreditation course. Really not that I wanted to change career paths and become a mediator, but it was, I thought, really important for me to understand what was being taught to mediators and how the mediation role, um, uh, what, what was important in that role in order to best advise yeah, my clients. Absolutely. I think that's so important that lawyers actually understand the dynamics of what's going on in the mediation to, as you said, help advise their clients and and also understand how to better use the mediator as a tool rather than just having them there not being used to capacity. So it's, it's mm. really interesting. Yes, very much so. And, you know, I learned a lot, you know, because as lawyers we're very much rights-focused, you know. Mm. This is the law. This is how it ought to be, you know. We tell our clients, you know, this yeah. is what's likely to happen in court. Um, this is how the law is to be interpreted. But then... Put, you know, it's a totally different hat that you put on in a negotiation mediation scenario where you've got to look at, you know, essentially the person and the environment and the interests 
It's a much broader um, perspective, isn't it? That's right. And, you know, to kind of move from really a rights-based scenario to looking at a broader interest-based scenario um, for lawyers is not an easy task because, you know, your education and you're taught to be analytical and this is how you apply the law, but looking at all the other things. I mean, I've got a psychology background. I did a double degree in psychology and law. So perhaps, you know, my interest in the the human psyche and how, um, you know, relationships and the impact of, um, uh, you know, negotiation and mediation, because ultimately you're dealing with people. You know, yes. you might have a very... Uh, contractual numbers-based dispute you know it's there in black and white but ultimately you are dealing with people we're not robots we're not you know people that um there's ai involved in decision making yeah (laughs) a mediation or negotiation so ultimately you know you are trying to use your powers of persuasion your powers of um, influence you know your powers of being able to see it see the situation from a different point of view mm. while that's sort of coming together to try and get uh, the best outcome for your for your client. Absolutely. And um, it's interesting. I was just reading the other day an article by Greg Rooney, who's a mediator based over in New Zealand, and it was all about the dehumanisation of the law and how we need mm. to move past that and, and get through. So there's, there's a mm. whole lot more that we could talk about there. Mm. Before we go down that path, though, I'm interested, um, one of the things I love to share is some of the experiences that people have had of negotiation and ones that have stood out in terms of things that you've learnt through the negotiation experience that you've had or things where you've tried something different and you went, wow, that was fantastic, I must do that again. So what are some of the negotiations that stick out in your mind? Hmm. There's a a couple. I mean, in a long career, you know, gone through a lot of mediations, but there's a couple that do stand out perhaps because they taught me something as as a result of... um, going through the mediation. So there was one where um, I was representing a director of a company involved in a property dispute and that director was a female director, uh, quite an experienced person. We had a mediator who was quite experienced, who was male, and during the mediation the client decided not to really engage in negotiation got a bit withdrawn you know found uh that we found that the matter wasn't going to resolve that day later on after the mediation it was revealed to me by the client that it was the demeanor of the mediator that was really off-putting to her and so she had made up her mind not to engage in negotiations with that uh, or you know have have the mediator assist because of the fact that she thought that the mediator was trying to intimidate her into a position because there was some body language use. The mediator put his, you know, leg up on a chair and was sort of um, leaning over her. She was sitting at the table and there were sort of other mannerisms that she found really confronting. And so that was a real eye-opener for me because, you know, being a female litigator for many years, perhaps you become desensitised to that sort of behaviour, but to actually, and it was great that the client actually told me that, but, you know, some clients might not. 
So what it taught me was to actually be mindful of the dynamics that are occurring. You know, the physical is just as important as what people are saying, what documents are being referred to. It's the total engagement that is really important. Absolutely. Um, And something as, you know, um, uh, you think, well, it's not relevant to the issues in dispute, but, of course, it was relevant to the client's mindset and their ability to really engage in a productive mediation. Well, that's right, isn't it? And, you know, at the heart of mediation, there's got to be trust between the parties and the mediator. And if she's getting a sense that he is biased towards her in any way, whether it's purely based on her gender or whether it's um, based on his perception of the legal rights in the matter, it really could get in the way. So I'm interested in that thing in that case because I know one of the things I like to do when I can with a mediation is have a conversation with the parties ahead of the mediation day itself. And for me, a big part of that is building that trust, getting to know them, them getting to know me, so that when we walk into that room, we're productive. So I'm interested whether in that situation, A, whether it happened, whether there was any pre-mediation communication between the mediator and the parties, and B, I guess, if there hadn't been, do you think it may have made a difference and may have perhaps got you to reassess whether this was the appropriate mediator up front? Yes, and, you know, another thing I learned from that is the absolute value in having the pre-mediation discussion and something that I really like about your practice, Nicole, is that you really do engage in pre-mediation discussions with each party separately, and I think that's a a very useful tool, and and it wasn't done in the case I'd just spoken about, and I think it would have helped um, build that rapport and that trust, um, as you say, and I think, you know, it, it, it goes to being, you know, having that preparation, particularly when you've got clients who aren't sophisticated litigants, you know, it might be different for a liquidator, receiver, administrator to taking part in a mediation because, um, they're, uh, used to that environment, but yeah. where you've got parties who aren't, um, uh, but even if they've done a few mediations, you know, um, allowing that trust dynamic because you want the me- the mediator to really assist the parties. You know, you're going in there with the best intentions to try and get a positive outcome to resolve the dispute. So looking at the overall process and not just what happens on the day is very important. So yeah. in that, you know, having that pre-mediation discussion, which also allows the parties to turn their minds, you know, to the issues in dispute, to alternatives, to options, rather than leaving it to, you know, two days before the mediation or the morning of. Absolutely, um, which, yeah. You know, has happened in my career as a junior lawyer, you know, the client would be told to, um, turn up to the mediation but without any preparation and you know it's just thought that we it was just a thing that you had to go through the motions because mediation was ordered um so over the course of my career you know learning from experiences like the one I've just spoken about mm. really has helped um actually make the most out of the mediation process yeah, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, one of the other things, you know, I always say the purpose of the, 
the pre-mediation meeting is one is about building that trust, but it's also starting the movement because mm-hmm. you tend to find, I think particularly, and, and I'm interested in what you think, you know, by the time you get to a court-ordered mediation, parties have normally been in this dispute for a significant amount of time. And what mm-hmm. tends to happen is they get more and more firmly embedded in their position. And so yeah. the mediation, you've got to get them away from that because they're not going to get what they actually want because if they were going to get that, they'd have got it by now. So you've got to get them from where they are at the moment in their position to something that is actually feasible. And if, say, that's getting them from A to C, if you can get them to B at the pre-mediation call and, and, and move them a little bit along the way, it makes the job on the mediation day that much easier because the momentum has already started. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the time it takes to fall considerations, options, alternatives to percolate in your head is wildly underestimated. And I think, you know, um, something I've learned is that you've got to have that pre-mediation discussion, you know, a week or two beforehand just Mm. to allow people to digest what, you know, what they need to consider, um, explore, you know, uh, going down a, a path that they might not have to see if the option that they um, are thinking about to resolve the matter might actually be feasible. Yeah. So, you know, even allowing for that practical sort of, you know, um, investigation to occur allows... Yeah, there's often something. a bit of research required, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's something they might not have considered and then all of a sudden if they've left it too late, you know, two days might not be enough to work out whether they can borrow money in order to, you know, pay the other party, yeah. for example, um, part of what's being um, uh, thought about. So, you know... Never underestimate the power of preparation. I think it goes to mediation as much as much as you know we've been taught that you've got to prepare when you are appearing in court. Um, yeah. Over prepare, you know, mediation is something that you know definitely shouldn't be something that you just go through the motions with. It is, you know, it does cost the client money. They've got to pay for the mediation mediator. Um, they've got to pay for potentially a position paper, they've got to pay for a venue potentially. So, you know, it's not something that should just be a tick in the box that I think sometimes you take value from it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, you might be so prepared, but again, it takes two to tango. So it's very important. And that's where I think a mediator comes in um, uh, when they have that pre-mediation discussion Mm. is to impress on the other side or both parties, you know, have you had a discussion with your client about what mediation involves? Have you gone through their Batner and Watners? You know, have you considered, have you, do they know their strengths and weaknesses? Mm. So, you know, you, you, you're, you're working with the legal representatives of both parties to. Well, so it, it's interesting. That, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because for me, my ideal pre-mediation conference actually has the clients there. Mm. Um, because then I'm having that discussion with them, mm. with the legal representative there. But I do find that there is pushback from a number of lawyers who either don't believe there's any value in the conversation or don't want their clients to be present and they're, they're saying, you know, well, it's fine, just have a chat to us. But the real power mm. comes from when the client is actually there. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, um, 
I think all pre-mediation discussions should have the clients there mm. because, you know, that's where you're building the rapport with the client. I mean, they're the mm. decision maker at the end of the day. And, you know, we all know that lawyers can be <laughs> more than half the problem sometimes, you know, it's <laughs> the roadblock. Not um, you, I'm sure, but some no, lawyers, yes. not me, definitely not me. Um, but, you know, they're roadblock. Um, yeah, well, they, they get wedded to the law, don't they? They, You know, I think it's easy yes. to get wedded to the legalities of the case and without meaning to do so, get stuck about the fact that even though you've got an amazing, you know, no case is unlosable, but you've got the 99%er and your client's willing to settle. And you're like, but why, why, why would you settle? You've got a winnable case yes. and they're still going to be in a worse position even if they go down the track and win. Yeah, and I'm, look, I'm firmly of the belief that, you know, of course all lawyers act in the best interest of clients, you know, that's something that we're obligated to do. And so really part of that is being open to mm you know, a proper mediation process, which means it's productive, clients are prepared, parties are going in there with the best of intentions to resolve yep. it. Do you ever feel stuck in a negotiation or conflict? You're not quite sure what the next step should be? Friends and colleagues may give advice, but perhaps they're only seeing things from your side. My new negotiation GP service is for exactly that situation. You can book a short, standard or long consultation where we will explore your situation using a systematic approach. You will walk away with concrete steps to follow and an increased confidence to manage the situation. To learn more, head to my website at nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au where you can book a consultation online. Don't forget, I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching, team training and expert advice on specific negotiations. My tailored approach is designed to meet your specific needs and my proven methodologies and strategies are grounded in the latest research and best practices. So whether you're a small business owner, a corporate executive or anyone in between, let me help you achieve your negotiation goals and maximise your success. Well, it's interesting because I often refer to that sort of concept from the conduct rules about acting in the best interests of the clients. And I think the issue is you can define best interests differently. And I think for some lawyers, it's the best legal interests, mm -hmm. which is not what it says. It's not narrowed down like that. So to me, it is the client's overall best interest. And that might be things like health, things like mental health, um, you know, financial, obviously, for small businesses particularly, it's the distraction from, you know, taking limited resources out of the business to manage a dispute that mm. could be doing something more productive. And I think they're all part of, you know. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things I like to do is when I'm acting for small businesses or individuals, um, you know, or uh, litigants who just haven't been through the process before, is to spell out what it is to go to court to to have a hearing if the matter doesn't settle you know the time it'll take yes mm. as you say the distraction the management hours because you know apart from considering when you do the preparation work strengths weaknesses rights interests options you know legal costs of course comes into play and there's some mediators who um are quite uh, clear in their opening statement about the legal costs, um, and I think that's a, that is a good 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 strategy to basically put it on the table right mm. from the start. But there's all those intangible costs as well, like 
yeah. you know, the stress, the distraction away from business, um, the uncertainty of outcome, you know, all yeah. of those also should be emphasised because sometimes people forget until they're there and they think, oh, shoot, I should have actually settled this six <laughs> months ago. Because you know, it's 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 all too mentally difficult. Um, yeah. So you know, painting that picture, which is in reality, you know, which is based in reality. I think having that reality check on that front mm. is also really important. Absolutely. So, what other examples stick in your mind from your negotiations over time? So I had a. Um, multi-party dispute um was acting for six defendants and their associated companies and you know they've been we've been organizing a mediation for months um and uh our counsel senior and junior myself and uh, a couple of my colleagues were involved in the case Plus, all the individual clients were there on time, 9.30, for the mediation to start a bit after 10. There was no appearance by the mediator nor the other lawyer or their clients. 30 minutes went by, phone calls um, were made, emails were sent. Then we eventually got a hold of the partner representing the other side and he said, oh, the mediator um, who was a senior counsel uh, actually told us about a week ago that um, he needed to be in court for the opening of a case um, so we couldn't start the mediation until 12.30. And so <laughs> that was new to us. So even despite, you know, organising the mediation, it was that miscommunication between mediator, other side and us that resulted in the clients being very frustrated. So it was just not a great start to mediation because they essentially, you know, six parties coming from um, different parts of Melbourne waiting for three hours um, when uh, they were all sort of psychologically ready to start the yeah. mediation pretty much soon after they got there was actually quite difficult to manage. So what that taught me was make sure you confirm with the mediator directly, don't rely on the other party. I mean, there was no malice, ill intent, but the other party was a It's just miscommunication, miscommunication, isn't it? But, but you're so, right, the, the, the lasting impact of that is people walking in and are they in a mental space to collaborate and work together or are they already kind of feeling hostile to each other? Yeah, so, I mean, look, uh, we got over that hurdle, but it was something that just didn't need to be there because it was already quite a, you know, long running dispute and it, and mm. perhaps to make matters worse when the other party did uh, parties did um arrive uh they were masked up which in this post-covid environment where masks aren't mandatory was a bit of a surprise and it was thought by some clients who later communicated to me that you know they thought that the mask was that you know one of the directors in particular sort of shielding themselves creating a bit of a physical barrier saying, yeah. you know, I'm I'm going to cover myself so you can't see my emotions and my face completely. Um, so, you know, add that on top of the fact that they're already upset yeah. by the three-hour delay, it, yes, it just wasn't a great start. I mean, that's something that, you know, you can't 
say to the other side, well, why are you wearing a mask? But perhaps if the mediator had known about it beforehand and said to our clients, you know, these clients are going to wear a mask, um, that's their choice. I wouldn't read anything into it or something like that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there, there's there's two aspects that I'm hearing there. One is about the preparation. Mm. You know, should a mediator be checking before a face-to-face mediation whether people want to wear masks or not? Maybe these days it's something we should be doing in case it does cause an issue. The other, I guess, is where those concerns come up in the mediation. And, you know, I guess my thinking would be, the mediator can only do something about it if they know that it's an issue. And so it's how do you get a message to the mediator rather than just leaving that as a as a problem? You know, it may be that there's a perfectly legitimate reason. It may be that they're actually, as, as the client assumed, just using that sort of as, you know, a, a plastic poker face. Mm. But unless you raise that question, so it may be that you could go to the mediator and say, could we just have a quiet word with you, please? Mm. Um, look, we're a bit concerned. We don't feel that they're engaging in the spirit of the mediation, that they're, you know, masking themselves. We'd like to understand if there's a reason. And the mediator could have a quiet chat and say, look, we're just checking if there's mm. a particular reason for the mask. Is there a specific medical concern that requires that you have this or whatever? But, you know, they're still not necessarily going to give an honest answer to the mediator if what they're trying to do is hide it. Yes. Um, yes. So I guess you can only try what is going on. It may be, you know, and one of the techniques generally in negotiations, if you think somebody's doing something as a tactic, mm. in this case, the, you know, hide the emotions tactic, sometimes just by naming it and calling mm. that behaviour, but not in an accusatory way, will actually make the person kind of change their behaviour anyway. So, yeah, I suppose it could be a double-edged sword, you know, if it's sort of questioned or pointed out, even if it's done in a tactical manner, the party might um, get their backs up saying, well, you know, I can wear a mask if I want to while they're questioning. And so the fact that the question is asked might put them offside. That's why it's got to be done really carefully. And yes. I'm just, you know, my, my mind's ticking over exactly how would I ask that question if, if a client raised that with me as an issue and wanted me to discuss with the other side. I guess I'd probably raise it as going, you know, the, the benefit of having people in the room together is that we can actually see what's going on. Having the masks on can get in the way of that. So we just want to check if there's any possibility mm. um, that you might be comfortable removing the mask. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it because you're sort of explaining to them what what the mask might convey and which might yeah. not be what they it could, want yeah, to Yeah, it's the unintended consequences, yeah. the possible yeah. unintended consequences, and, and you're trying to do it in a way which suggests that they're completely aware of any of this. Mm. Um, but it is you, you do need to stop and really think about what am I going to convey by the way that I'm saying this to them? So, you know, yes. dealing with it in the moment can be challenging, but as a mediator, yes. that's often what we're doing is thinking about how do I put this yes. in the way that's going to keep things workable? Yes, and not derail or get someone mm. back up and then, you know, you might, you might risk losing that rapport or trust that you've developed or trying to develop. So... Yes, it can be tricky. And these are the things that, you know, we haven't had to consider pre-pandemic. So, <laughs> well, but it's interesting because even on um, even on video negotiations, you know, video mediations that I've been doing, 
I will often have to work with parties around that ability because what they do in in video can often be the camera's position. So there might be two people sharing a computer, but I can only see one or one and a half people. Mm. And, you know, once again, it's really important in a mediation to be able to see people. So as a mediator, I will have to very tactfully ask them to reposition that camera. Look, I'm sorry, the the camera's positioned so I can't see you both. It's important. Are you able to just shift the seating or do something? Is there something where you can Mm. get that back? Because for me, if it comes to my attention, then there's a risk that it's a problem for the other party. And if, if it's not addressed, yes, it's just going to cause ongoing problems now. It may also be that the other party doesn't care at all and it's just me. Yes. But I'd rather be overcautious. Yes, yes. No, important. Yes. Hmm. So I'm I'm interested too because when we've talked about negotiations so far, they've all been in the context of mediation. I'm assuming that you will often be negotiating directly Hmm. with the other side, not in the context of um, negotiation. Now, my experience of that is a lot of those negotiations in litigation particularly happen with written words rather than face-to-face. Mm-hmm. How do you find the difference between negotiating on paper versus face-to-face and how often are those face-to-face unmediated negotiations happening? I think rare. I mean, you know, you can have informal discussions, but mm-hmm. I think parties are used to you know, sending call-to-back letters to each other or, um, you know, because letters of offer. Um, And there are often occasions when, depending on, you know, the issues involved, the nature of the party involved, the nature of the lawyer involved, that, you know, we decide let's have an informal roundtable Mm -hmm. And often that's done without an independent person there to reduce costs, but also to make it informal in nature. Um, But I must say, you know, in my experience, they're not that common. Often you will just swap call the banks, you know, wait for a mediation date to be put forward and then you mediate. Because I think... Unfortunately, there is a reluctance by litigating parties to show their hand too early. Yeah. And so, you know, as lawyers, we want to make sure, you know, we've done discovery and we've got all the information we need. Often, though, with the informal mediation does work is before parties have to spend money on expensive expert reports. Yes. Because, you know, both parties are of like mind that, you, you know, this is something that should be resolved rather than waste time mm-hmm. getting it and money getting the expert before. Let's see how much we can resolve this. But, of course, you know, that might lead to the fact that actually what's glaringly obvious is we actually need some expert evidence yeah. <laughs> in order to mediate. But, but it's, it's got to be better if the parties can agree to bring in one single expert and agree on the briefing that's given to them about mm. what the facts are, then even that will save them money in yeah. the dispute process. Yeah. And, yeah, and look, I mean, it, like I said, you know, it really depends on the parties involved. Yeah. It does require that level of agreement. Yes. Um, you know, and we're in a court environment, you know, agreed list of issues, agreed, um, uh, you know, issues in dispute have failed is because you just can't agree. 
you know, you basically yeah. have to agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and you sort of sometimes know better off and there's been, you know, a lot of time spent trying to get to that point. But I think there's definitely uh, opportunity for that type of process mm. to occur because, um, again, you know, it just depends on the parties and it depends on the set, you know, if you've got sensible parties on the other side, they realise that this, you know, particularly when they have to work together. Yes, if it's person, an ongoing you know, relationship, it's ongoing relationship. Yeah, and they, they both know, yes, you know, we've both got lawyers, but ultimately we need to work with each other in future or have that opportunity to. So let's try and resolve this as best we can. So yeah. I think it's like horses for courses. Is well, definitely well, I'm interested. Yeah. So I've got one more question for you on this um, side of things. In the UK at the moment, they are debating and it looks like they will introduce what we already have here in certain areas such as family law and mm. retail leasing where you will have to mediate or get a certificate of exemption before you can issue mm. litigation in the lower court. Mm. Um, and they're talking that that may extend. What's your view on that? Mm. Do you think that's something that would resolve disputes and save parties' costs or just an unnecessary cost? Um. I actually think it's a good idea for lower courts because as a lawyer, you know, if you've got a magistrate's court matter or a VCAT matter, you often have to, you know, you can't sort of half do a statement of claim or complaint, mm. you can't half do a defence. You know, you still have to spend the time and in this sort of um, time-based type of charging that a lot of firms do and then the fact that you've got, you know, scale costs, et cetera, as well, the differential in out of pockets and the recovery gets bigger and bigger. So, um, you know, on the way into work this morning, I heard that the Magistrates Court has got, I think, more than 55,000 cases yet in the criminal division yet to be heard. Oh, my. It's a severe backlog. Um, Of course, you know, when they say cases, then I mean they're all hearings, but mentions, committals, all of that. But, you know, it's a significant number. Apparently it's been reduced, the backlog's been reduced by 17% this year alone. So they're Mm. chipping away at it. But the pandemic has definitely slowed things down. So, you know, there is in the lower courts, I mean, VCAT definitely has a backlog because of the number of um, leasing disputes that have arisen because of the rules that are around um, the code that was... um, around during the pandemic so you know those lower courts are really feeling the pressure and I I think given the jurisdictional limits Mm. and the types of cases that occur they're more conducive towards this type of process that they are adopting or hopefully adopting in the UK. Are they piloting that at the moment? I think they've piloted and now they're just looking at how they're going to implement. So there are some other jurisdictions that do this. Part of Italy has already got mandatory mediation. So it's it's a discussion that I think is starting to grow. I'm obviously a big advocate, I think, getting in early before the parties have spent a fortune and hate each other more than they did at the start has some real benefits. And then with the cost of litigation, you know, the bigger cases, mm. yes, you know, that's where I think litigation adversarial process belongs. I think the smaller cases, you know, where they're more likely to be amenable to results because, you know, you're unlikely to be uh, opening the floodgates or setting precedent or, you know, dealing with millions of dollars, 
yes, they're very important to the parties involved, but yeah. looking at alternative ways to try and resolve it without making costly so that people don't just throw their hands up in the air saying, well, you know, there's no point. Even though I've got a dispute, there's no point because it's too costly. Yeah. You know, access to justice obviously plays a huge role in advocating for alternative dispute resolution processes in the yeah. world. Totally. So I have had a fantastic discussion with you, Radhika. I'm sure we could go on and talk about lots more things. So I might have to have you back another time. But we'll wrap it up for now. Before we go, just quickly, who are the types of people who might want to reach out to you for assistance and how are they best to get in touch with you? Um, So, you know, any commercial disputes, any individuals or corporates, small businesses, mid-sized businesses in financial distress. That's really the uh, type of client I um, love to assist. Um, You can reach out to me um, via my email, which is r.kanhai at cornwalls.com.au. I'm sure Nicole will have it somewhere. (laughs) It will be in the show notes for people as well. Absolutely. And then I've also got a mobile number. Um, You know, I'm on the web, Cornwall's website. Um, So you can reach out to me that way. I also have a Twitter handle and also LinkedIn. So We'll put all um, of those on the show notes as well for you. I've had a really great time chatting to you as well, Nicole. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nicole. That's all for this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and learned something new that you can apply in your own negotiations. Remember, negotiation is a skill that can be developed and refined over time. So keep practicing and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on social media or email us directly. And if you liked this episode, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. It helps us to reach more people and continue to produce high quality content. Until next time, keep negotiating in real life.